0: All right. Good morning. Oh, come on. Good morning. Thank you. Gosh, I'm about to lose my voice, and I'll still even say good morning to you. You know what I was thinking about while we were doing that? That was so amazing. Is that um, when this is all done, this life thing, we're gonna do that for eternity. I mean, it's this amazing concept that you're not gonna hear any more preaching. Which some of you are like, oh, praise Jesus. But the one thing that we're going to continue to do for eternity, except it's not going to be just like the seven, eight, nine hundred people here. I mean, it's going to be millions of people standing around the throne of God, singing songs about praise to Him. And even that song, the first one we sang, I was thinking about it, like suddenly, I don't know why. Do you realize how quickly our perspective is going to change the day we stand in front of God? Like, think about it this way. I'm not worried about tomorrow when I'm standing in front of God. You're not thinking through your schedule, right? You're not going, oh my gosh, okay, I need to meet with so-and-so. Man, with you stand in front of God, all of a sudden all that stuff just goes right out the door. It doesn't matter anymore. It's this thing in which with the, the day that I finally stand in front of my creator, my perspective on life is gonna radically shift. I'm not gonna wake up thinking how I'm gonna make my next buck I'm not trying to figure out how I'm going to impress the next person. I'm not worried about anything anymore because suddenly this whole life has culminated into this amazing thing where that is where I get to stand in front of God that day. And with all of you that know Jesus Christ, we're going to be able to just sing songs to God. It's not going to be this boring sitting on a stupid cloud and playing a harp like so often people have in their head. It is going to be this immense praise service that's going to go on and and we're going to say things about God and talk about God and oh my gosh our perspective at that point shifts. And I think the thing, that, and I've been thinking about this in my own life, and by the way, this is about a process of about three to four weeks that in my own life I've been struggling through. Is about three to four weeks ago, I realized I had a really poopy perspective. I realized that I had kind of lost this amazing God perspective in my life, and I realized I needed to dive into God's Word, and I needed to reconnect with what is it, not what is Todd's perspective, but what is God's perspective on life. Um, I think perspective is an easy thing to figure out. I grew up in Wyoming, of all places, uh, where men are men and so are women. You know, It's just this amazing state where it's one of the only states i know where women they don't mind you take a chew and so do they you know it's like this great place i grew up part of my life on a ranch and a farm uh in this little town called lagrange wyoming uh perspective in lagrange wyoming a town on one side when you come in 237 when you come on the other side is 238 is much different than simi valley to say the least a traffic jam in LaGrange, Wyoming is when Farmer Johnson is driving his big old gnarly tractor down the road with a big giant implement and five cars are behind wondering when the heck he's going to get out of the way. A traffic jam in California is this parking lot we call the 405, right? Perspective there, you need a, to buy a home about forty-five dollars to $70,000. To buy a home here, you have to give up your first child a blood sample and also promise to give up your soul for eternity. It's this thing in which our perspective, depending on where we are and what we're looking at, greatly affects how we think. And the one thing that I'm very convinced of now after three to four weeks, even looking at my own life, our perspective determines everything about our life. My perspective, if I really think money is going to make me happy, then what do I do? I do everything I can to make money. If I think marriage is going to make me happy, I do everything I can to get married. If I think kids are going to make me happy, you've then forgotten that they grow up to be teenagers, but I will do whatever it takes to get kids. It's this thing in which if I can ever just grasp a hold of this perspective, not what Todd wants to do, but to begin to gain this, this perspective of the one that created me, that knows me better than me, that it only makes sense that I would gain his perspective, my view on life starts to shift. And there's a guy that, maybe you know him, maybe you don't, maybe you're somebody that's grown up in the church and you know this Apostle Paul guy, maybe you're someone that hasn't. But the Apostle Paul has wrecked my life on understanding what perspective is. The Apostle Paul was born into a family, a privileged family, a guy, his dad was a Pharisee, which was one of the main religious dudes at the time. He grew up in this family, took on a trade, he became a tent maker... And at a certain point in his life, he got sent off to the school of Judea at the time. The Harvard, the Yale, the Princeton. He got sent to it. He got sent to the school of Gamaliel. The school. Paul wanted so bad to get to the top of that school, and so in starting to become a Pharisee, he, as a young man, he was climbing the corporate ladder of Phariseeism. He gets to the top, and the first time that we come into encounter with Paul was when he is standing watching as the first Christian is killed, Stephen. It said they laid their coats at Paul's feet, meaning he was the guy that pulled this whole killing the first Christian thing off. He grew up at a time, it was called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, where people were doing whatever they could to promote this system that Rome said, ah, if you just buy into our system, you'll be happy. By the way, if you've watched the news much, we think that about the United States. And by the way, from what I understand, this system, though I love it, and I'm so glad that there are men we just found out that have died for this system, I love it, but it's not God's system. God does not, it's not a democracy when we get to heaven, I hate to tell you. It's a flat-out monarchy, and we're okay with that. See, our system, the peace of Rome, is not what we're after. And it's also not the Pax Americana. Somehow the peace of America is not what we're after. We're so privileged to live here. But one day, I think the thing that happened to Paul that's so interesting is in Acts 9, he had an event in his life that radically changed him forever. It wasn't the Pax Romana, it wasn't the Pax Judaica, the peace of Judaism, it wasn't the Pax Americana, he ran into the Pax Christiana. He met his Savior Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus and it radically changed his life forever. His perspective went from trying to kill Christians, from trying to do them in, he went from trying to stop this system of Christianity to suddenly he became one of the main people that was building it around the world. He went from trying to kill him to becoming the killed. Somewhere between 64 and 68 AD, Paul paid the ultimate price for this amazing thing. We call it martyrdom. Now, not all of us are called to it, but Paul was willing even to give up his own life because he believed so much in it. And my question is, what in the world happened to Paul? How could he take this amazing flip-flop, and I would say to you, as perspective. He went from somebody that saw life down his little lens of trying to climb the corporate ladder and he dropped it and he realized the best thing he could do was get to know this God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is writing to a group of this, that are called Corinthians. It was one of the largest cities at that time. And the problem with the Corinthians, and if you ever read these two books, was that they had lost perspective on what's important. And I would say, now let's be honest with one another because I'm confessing to you, We all lose perspective all the time. We lose perspective on what's really important and when we lose perspective on what's important, suddenly our life begins to tailspin into this nastiness that that gets us away from what God says is important. And When we get away from what God says is important, God says, I promise you, the only thing that will come is pain. It was so cool. This week, I've run into different guys, but one guy came into my office and he had run into this Jesus Christ for the first time through this video that we've been putting out. And he looked at me, and this is what he said to me. He said, after watching that video, why is it that I see life differently? I just said, welcome to the club. (laughs) See, there's something about coming into contact with Jesus Christ that radically shifts everything about who we are. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-10, he's laying out this amazing picture that he can't wait for the day that he's no longer in this world, but instead he is with his Savior. And he built his whole life around the reality that we are not meant to be here. He says, I'm a guest in this world. I'm a stranger. I'm an alien. Now the cool thing about that thought is, can you imagine for just one second? Think about it if all of a sudden all of us were going to stay in the Hilton somewhere. Would you take all your belongings... Would you start setting up home in the Hilton? No. But yet, isn't it interesting that those of us that are Christians here, we're doing everything we can to try to stay here. And I'll be honest with you, whenever I turn my head down and look in the mirror, I'm realizing that this body is decaying because my hair is falling out at a rate that I can't handle. Pretty soon I'm going to be like Francis and shaving my head. I'm gaining a little pouch and no matter how long at 24-hour fitness I work out, that pouch seems to haunt me partly because I really like chocolate. We're falling apart. We're trying so hard to stay here. I'll be honest with you, the only reason I work out is not from my heart, it's because I want to look totally hot for my wife. And so far, I'm not doing great. But Paul is so interesting, he can turn with me in 2 Corinthians 5. It wasn't just that he wanted to be with God, that motivated him. But he also knew 2 Corinthians 5.10. Listen to this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul learned something that I don't think I've quite yet wrapped my mind around and I would say probably most of us in this room haven't. I don't care if you are male, female, brown, black, or white, if you live in the United States, or you live in Australia, or you live in somewhere in Russia. There's something that Paul learned that he really believed, which was that one day he would stand in front of his Creator. There was no doubt in his mind, he didn't care if you were saved or unsaved, all of us one day were going to appear before Jesus Christ, and we were going to have to answer for the reality of our life. Now he saw it from the lens of a Christian in that these things were now everything that he has done was forgiven. Amen. But that didn't change the reality that one day I had to stand in front of God. And then look at verse 11. He said, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. See, I I think in my life, and to be honest with you, three to four weeks ago, I've forgotten what it means to fear God. In the Bible it says, The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And the moment that you don't fear God, pretty soon, I'll just be honest, and please don't take this as offensive, because I'm also condemning myself, I became stupid, and so do you. The moment that we stop this amazing fear of God, we enter into stupid world. Because at that moment, we forget that God, who created the stars, that some of them burn at 250,000 degrees Fahrenheit, He created a sun that burns at 9,900 degrees Fahrenheit, could literally come down, and if He wanted to, your life could be ended like that. It's not just that, but if you've ever stood in front of the Grand Canyon, and you stood there, and when you've watched this, it's just a big, giant pothole, but when you stand in front of it, you're like, I've also forgotten how beautiful God is. We go to a church that I'm so thankful. Francis, the one thing he does that I love is he promotes such a high view of God but that doesn't make us somehow immune to forgetting how amazing and how beautiful and how awesome, but how terrible is this God that we serve. See, it's this. Whatever you fear will control you. Whatever you fear will control you. Meaning, if you fear circumstances, if you fear things, if you fear people, whatever you fear will control you. And if you don't believe me, you should watch a movie with my wife sometime. If She cannot watch scary movies because the moment she watches... See, my wife, when she watches a, a, like a romance movie, she is in the movie. And she becomes so lovey-dovey. If she watches a comedy, she's slapstick. But if she watches a scary movie, she is terrified. She goes to bed at night. She won't put her feet out of the bed because she's afraid something's under the bed. It controls her. And whatever we fear controls us. And Paul knew that. And Paul knew that if God will control, if I I fear God, then no longer do people control me, no longer do circumstances control me, no longer does what people that can take my breath control me, but now all of a sudden the one that can take my soul, like Jesus talked about, that's who I want to fear. And especially I think living in the United States, this is so hard. Like you live in certain cultures that I've traveled to around the world where death is on your doorstep, that creates a whole new level of fear. But I think in this cushy world, which God bless America, I love it, but we forget how amazing it is to live in this life of fear to God. Now he goes on and he says this, watch this. He says in the rest of verse 11, but what we are known is known to God, meaning God knows me, and I hope it's also known to your conscience, meaning I hope you know this. We're not commending ourselves to you. In other words, we're not trying to impress you. We're not trying to do these things about you. But we're trying to give you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. See, the problem with all of us here, including me, is we so much want to impress each other at the neglect of seeking to just, with everything we are, try to impress God. See, we come in here and... When you ask, how are you doing? Well, you don't want to look at somebody and go, oh man, you wouldn't believe it. I got bunions like you wouldn't imagine. You know, I know we don't say these things. We're like, what do we say? Great, fine. Right? We're afraid even sometimes to allow people to know who we truly are. And part of that is, is whatever you fear will control you. But listen to me fear is only part of this picture Paul's about ready to lay out. See, fear will control us and you probably those of you that are parents have learned that if you want to control your kids, one way to do that is the proper fear and my dad was phenomenal at it. He grew up on a ranch and a farm and homeboy had an ability to create fear in you if you know what I'm saying. But, think about this for a second. Can you imagine if I walked up to my dad and said, Dad, I want to let you know I appreciate so much that you provide for me to live here in this house. Dad, I am so, so thankful that you you give us food to eat, clothes to wear. Thanks for the car that I got to drive, and mine was a 72 Vegas, so I wasn't very thankful, as you can tell. I was, I'm kidding. Thank you, Dad. But by the way, I don't love you. You see, fear is what causes people in the Middle East to strap bombs to themselves, to walk into a hotel and to blow themselves up. But Paul is going to say something so interesting here in verse 14 that transforms this fear that controls me. He understands that what we love we'll pursue. I told you before, I love chocolate. And when I want chocolate, watch out. Because I will pursue it with everything I have. But I remember this day. I remember the day that I first ran into my wife Lisa. I remember that this totally hot, drop-dead, gorgeous, knockout woman. And she was across and we were were at this dance together and I was going to do everything that I could to get to know that girl. I went out of my way. I would go sit under her dorm room and just look up and I would dream about the day that we got married. I even would drive by three, four times because I was so afraid to go talk to this amazing woman. I remember the day that finally I got down on one knee and I said, Oh, Lisa, I love you and I'll do whatever it takes for us to get married. But you know, after like five years, ten years, we can forget that first love. I used to open doors for every chance I could get. Man, I would go, we'd come to the car, I'd be like... Right? Now it's like I walk out to the car and I'm like, shut up and get in. <laughs> See, the problem that we face is is what the Ephesian church faced in Revelation 2. In Revelation 2, Jesus said, oh, thank you so much for your hard work and your dedication. I know you fear me. I know you respect me. But then in verse 4, He says, but this I have against you. You have left your first love. See, fear without love, God doesn't care. See, everybody's going to bow a knee to Him one day, but that does not save them from the fire of hell. There's something unique that Paul is talking about, this love aspect that changed him. And what was this love aspect? Look down with me again. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls me. It's what I pursue. It's what I'm after because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and He died for all, that those who live... Might not no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. You know what I forgot? I forgot that day on March 19th, 1993. I was in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was there. I thought I was going to have a blast. It was my 21st birthday. Bad place to be on your 21st birthday. I was in the Mirage. And I remember having a great time. We had put whatever chemicals we had gotten into our body and we thought, woo, woo, you know, I don't know. It was stupid. And I went in to use the little cowboy's room at the Mirage and as I walked in, I'm standing in this ucky, nasty, brown bathroom in the Mirage and I turned around and I look in the mirror and I saw face to face the person that I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to become. But see, the problem is, I think we forget that. I think we forget that not only does this God, this amazing God that loves us with everything that we are, that it could squash us like a grape, loved us so much that 2,000 years ago, in this amazing love gift, sent His Son to live a perfect life, to die, to be buried, to raise again, to ascend back to the Father. Now He's in front of God right now saying, See that guy, Todd? I died for him. See, I think we forget just this beauty, this this awesome picture of the gospel, and it's like my wife that the, the further I get from that that just love iggy giggy little thing that happens inside of you, face, is that I get further and further away from that, I lose that first love. It was really cool. One theologian said, Our biggest problem is we don't preach the gospel to ourselves over and over and over. See, we get caught up in trying to get that higher knowledge, get real smart. The Corinthians learned, though, that knowledge puffs up. We forgot how awesome it was that day that I looked at Jesus Christ for the first time and I said, I cannot believe that you died for me. And I forgot what it felt like that day. I forgot what it felt like the first time somebody put a Bible in my hand. I'm like, no way, these are the words of God? And I'm like reading it. You know, the first time that I came to Christ, all these guys were reading Calvin's Institutes, which is a big, long, boring book. I thought that's what Christians did. So I went and checked it out, and I'm reading it going, oh my gosh, Christianity is going to be boring. But here we go. But I so loved my Savior. I so wanted to know Him. And, I, and I, the problem was, those four weeks ago, I forgot what it was like that day that I went, oh my gosh, Jesus Christ who died for me. And I would venture to guess... In this room, probably most of us struggle with that reality. We struggle with that 1st love reality. And what that does to our perspective is that now no longer do I fear, now no longer do I understand this love, and so I get caught up in this perspective that society and media, everyone tells me, is going to make me happy because I forgot how awesome it is. Paul goes on and explains it even more. Look at verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. He says, the moment that I came to Jesus Christ, I didn't see Jesus the same anymore. Jesus wasn't just this guy that died on a cross, this, this, this guy that was trying to lead a band of rebels. Suddenly, I realized He really was Jesus Christ. See, that guy that came into my office, for the first time, he goes, Oh my goodness, He really was the God-man that died for me. And then something cool happens in 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, as Paul got so consumed in this God that, that was could squash him like a grape that he feared, but then all of a sudden he also realized this God loved him so much that even though Paul didn't choose to love him first, that God loved him first, and that while he was still a sinner, Christ died for him. As he got caught up in this amazing love relationship with this God, suddenly God began to infuse within him a new life. A new life that as he spent time in the Scriptures, God would slowly transform him, pull the blinders back from his eyes, and he saw life from a whole new perspective. But see, the problem is, as we get caught up in this life, the blinders slowly start to begin to shut down around us and we can forget this amazing life that God created us to live. In verse 21, it says something so interesting. Not only did He change us, but it says He's infused within us the righteousness of God. Meaning He's not only just kind of left us here and said, Hey, I hope everything works well for you. He gave us the Holy Spirit to pull this off. This amazing God that's loved me so much, he given me so much, and Paul said, you've got to know Him because when you truly know God, your perspective changes on everything. But the problem is, all of us know in this room, we have to continually know God. It's not just this one-time thing. It's knowing Him and knowing Him and knowing Him. But something else happened to Paul that's so cool. He also says in verse 16, He says, you know, and I used to know Christ that way, but He said, guess what? I started to know people a different way. See, not only did He fear God, not only did He love God, but God lifted the blinders of His eyes and He started to see people from a whole new perspective. See, I think in Southern California, and I'll confess to you, I might be the worst, when I enter the 118, I enter warfare. When I get in line at Walmart... And that kid in front of you that won't obey and you want to grab that kid, put him over your knee, thank him, hand him back to the mom and say, hey, don't worry about it. <laughs> Paul all of a sudden started to see people different. See, the thing that happened to me and I think it can happen to all of us is I'll never forget the first day I came over the hill into Simi Valley after I found out I was going to be coming on staff at Cornerstone pulled over and I looked over this community at this time I didn't know how big it was I didn't have a clue I just was so excited to be in ministry and I got to come be with people and as I looked over this whole community I realized in one I don't know why at that point I saw it but there were thousands of people down there that were facing a reality that I don't face anymore which is an eternity apart from Christ in hell See, I came over that hill and I still can remember to this day seeing Simi Valley for the first time in that light. Did you know there's 120,000 people in Simi Valley? And if my statistics are correct what I looked it up, if right now everyone were to die, 100,000 people would face an eternity apart from Jesus Christ. See, Paul said, I didn't see people in that same way anymore. The problem is, is we get poopy. Governor is whole propositions didn't pass, right? And I've talked to a group of people, some were so stinky poopy. What are we going to do? Oh no! Look, we don't look at people that way. We don't look at circumstances that way. We don't look at anything that way anymore. Now that I know God, I realize He is absolutely on His throne. He is in control. And all these people down here, He has left me here for the sole purpose of introducing to them this amazing God that I fear, this amazing God that I love, and I want them to have this same relationship that I have with Him. Did we do these DVDs because we were bored? No! We did these DVDs with the hope that they could get to know the same God that those of us in this room know. We want them so badly to come into this relationship with this God that we'll spend over $100,000 to put together a good DVD to handle the lives of people. And please, just one side note, please don't just hand them off and say, hey, good luck to you, huh? No! Find your neighbors. Go get in their life. Introduce them to the God that you know. I was here this last week on Monday night, and I don't know why in the world God blessed me with it, but I got to show this video to about 30 to 40 Jewish kids that were coming over as part of their mitzvah. It was so awesome. They had never been introduced to this God like we present here anymore, this God that's to fear but also to love. And they were blown away by this reality. I answered questions for two and a half hours with these kids. And I'll be honest with you, Monday morning when Francis called me and said, hey man, I can't talk, can you do it? I went, oh crud. Come on. You wouldn't believe in my schedule. What's going on here? I got no time for chitrons. But I was so blessed that night that I got to sit down and explain to him that their Messiah that came 2,000 years ago was the very Messiah that they had missed and that they no longer need to miss. The Messiah that died for me was the Messiah that died for them. And Paul says, I don't see people that way. In fact, he says, now all of a sudden I'm bringing this message of reconciliation that they no longer have to be at war with this God, but now they can know this God. And a lot of times then I think all of us sitting here go, yeah, that's good for Paul. Paul was one of those super spiritual guys. The same Holy Spirit that was in Paul is in each and every one of us in this room. And yeah, you may not be called to go to Africa, which I think that's what sometimes, I don't know why everybody thinks, oh great, I gotta go to Africa now. I gotta go to South America. But you know what? I ran into a guy this week in history that blew me away. In the mid 1800s, a man named Edward Kimball bought into this reality, he changed his perspective. Edward Kimball decided he feared God so much, he loved God so much, he got to know and savor and love this amazing God that he wanted others to know about it. And what he decided to do was at his church, he decided that he was going to get involved in their Sunday school program. Selfless plug, I would encourage it, by the way, at Cornerstone as well. Now, side note. While he was there, he met a young man in his early teens. He decided this guy he was going to pour and invest his life into and he was going to chase him down and do whatever it took that this young man would know and savor and love Jesus Christ. He chased him to work one day. This young man was an inspiring up-and-coming shoe salesman and he chased him down and when he finally got to the building, he looked in and this young man is helping people and he just waited at the door praying that God would give him an opportunity to chase him down after he goes back into the workroom in the back. Finally, he walked back, and the guy entered the room. He walked into the back room, put his arm around the young man, and introduced him to this God. And this young man understood and chose to follow this amazing God. That young man's name was Dwight L. Moody. Now, if you don't know Dwight L. Moody, he was one of the most faithful and uh, uh, well, he's one of the best evangelists of the early ni- of the uh, 19th century. Thousands of people in New York City, Chicago, London came to know Jesus Christ through his ministry. But see, the thing about it is, is, I don't think Edward Kimball had any clue. I don't think he was thinking, okay, if I lead this young D.L. Moody to Jesus Christ, he's going to go crazy. So that's the one I want. He just was so faithful in the life of this one young guy. And this one young guy absolutely exploded onto the scene. And after he exploded onto the scene, another person came to know Jesus Christ through his ministry. He had grown up in church, but at a camp where Moody was speaking at, a young man by the name of uh, J. Wilbur Chapman decided he wanted to follow Jesus Christ like Moody did. J. Wilbur Chapman became, at the turn of the century, one of the most incredible evangelists in his own right. This young man that Moody decides to spend time with, like Edward Kimball spent time with him, absolutely explodes onto the scene. As he was traveling around, a young man, an up-and-coming baseball star named Billy Sunday met him, and then Kimball decided, or not Kimball, but um, Chapman decided to bring Billy Sunday onto his staff, poured his life into him. Billy Sunday also became, in the early 20th century, one of the greatest evangelists of that known time. Billy Sunday led a group of businessmen to Jesus Christ, and a group of businessmen led a guy named Mordecai Ham to Jesus Christ. Mordecai Ham planted churches for the Baptist movement all over the United States, led people to Jesus Christ, and I would venture to guess that when Edward Kimball started this process, he never thought, oh my gosh, thousands of people are going to come to know Jesus Christ. I think he just saw the White L. Moody. But see, in 1934, Mordecai Ham met a 16-year-old. And this amazing God, this God that was to be feared and to be loved, the 16-year-old came into an encounter with him. For the last 50 years, 47 of those years, this man has been considered one of the ten most influential people in the world. You might know him as Billy Graham. I don't think Edward Kimball ever thought that when he led Dwight L. Moody to Jesus Christ, when he spent time with him, when he loved him, when he poured his life into him, that he thought, oh my gosh, through this one act of just being faithful in what God has called me to do and to just love little Dwight L. Moody that he think that millions of people would come to know Jesus Christ through this one moment but I don't think we sitting in this room together believe that either there's so many kids that come to Cornerstone we have one of the biggest missions programs in the world because we have kids here every year that we release at 18 to go all over the world We've got kids in children's ministry. Doug would love to talk to you. We've got them in Ascent. We've got them in Impact. We've got them in Rock. We've got them in Access. We've got young couples that desperately need to have somebody to pour their life into them. We've got young. We've got old. We've got brown, black, and white. We've got male. We've got female. The only thing I would ask is find one. Do you realize if the 4,000 people that come to Cornerstone would just find one this year, what change that would make? See, I think we always think, oh, we're never gonna reach the whole city of Simi Valley. Do you know if we were faithful to one in less than five years, we could have reached the whole city of Simi Valley? Just one a year. But I think the problem is our perspective is I go to job, my job to collect a paycheck. And can I challenge you with something? I don't go to work to collect a paycheck. I go to work because there's lost and dying people that are at my workplace and oh yeah, by the way, my paycheck is a side benefit. I don't get to know my neighbors because they have salt that I could use later on. I get to know my neighbors because they're lost and dying and facing an eternity apart from Jesus Christ. Blake Shaw was that man in my life. I'll never be able to thank Him enough for introducing me to who God was. But I would say one of the things that Cornerstone needs to recapture, and I would say I do, and it's been, like I said, a three or four week process of just begging God to show me recapturing this amazing thing of fearing God, of loving God, and loving people. almost sounds biblical, doesn't it? What an amazing, simple process. If you're somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, this walk with the God that we are to fear, that we are to love, that died for me and died for you, get to know him today.